Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. The book of Titus. Um, I would tell you a page number, but it's not the same in your Bible. But first and second, Timothy Titus. Uh, short book. Um, but we're going to be in Titus uh, mostly in chapter 3. And even drilled down further in uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 4 through 8. We'll focus on that. But Titus chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And he writes this. This is Paul writing to Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. All right. Well, um, usually when I speak, I like to do a little bit of study, and then after I do a little bit of study, I'll sort of preach uh, what we're talking about. It's going to be more of a mixture tonight, I think, than that. Um, but I just kind of want to review a little bit about... Uh, Titus. And what's going on right now? Well, this is towards the end of Paul's missionary career. He's not in prison right now. Matter of fact, you read at the end of the letter, uh, verse 12, he says, he's instructing Titus in verse 12, he says, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Um, a lot of people think that Paul's writing this after he's either gone to Spain briefly and come back, or he's gone to, I don't know, Rome briefly and come back. Um, but he's coming back because he's established a ministry in Crete, and that ministry is in, is in danger. Of course, Titus, if you know anything about uh, the rest of Scripture in the book of Acts and other places, we know Titus was used by Paul in Corinth. And if you know anything about First and Second Corinthians, Corinth was a very uh, troublesome church. They had the same problem there with bad leadership. They had the same problem there with false teachers, especially Judaizers, people who said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but also you need to be circumcised, and also you need to keep the law. And anytime uh, anybody adds also to faith in Jesus Christ, then you've got a problem. Uh, but Titus had proved himself faithful in Corinth, so now he's finding him on the, on the island of Crete. And what he instructs him to do is interest is about three main things. First of all, he uh, wants them to restore things, uh, restore things uh, that need to be restored. He wants him to uh, appoint elders in all the churches, uh, men that know doctrine and that can combat false doctrine. Uh, 
He wants them to reorder what the church is supposed to do. He gives instructions on how men and women are supposed to live, how wives and husbands are supposed to live, and how bond servants are supposed to live. And so he gives instruction about how the church is supposed to be. He wants there to be unity in the church. And then the passage that we just read, he moves from out of the church to how, from out of the, oh, the body of Christ into how the church is supposed to live among the lost world. And he reminds them that they were once lost. And so they should understand what it is to live in a lost world and to not be like what the lost world is like. But he moves from there uh, to get on to uh, really the heart of the gospel. You know, Titus was the perfect person to choose for this, and he calls him in verse 4, he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And that's sort of the emphasis of the letter and the emphasis tonight is what we have in common in our faith. And by a common faith, he means the true gospel, the true faith. But he also means more than that. He means how the gospel has cut down boundaries so that we can live. And Titus is the perfect example of that. Uh, Titus is a Greek. Uh, Titus is not a Jew. Uh, he, so as a result, he would be uncircumcised, not a men, member of the circumcision party. But none of that is supposed to matter. The racial lines don't matter. The law uh, keeping doesn't matter because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And beginning in verse 4, he writes this. After reminding them how they used to live, after reminding them how they used to be, he says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And he begins by reminding him what? Of God's character. Of God's character. Uh, the goodness and the kindness of God our Savior appeared. Goodness and loving kindness were used in those days and used in those times, not only to describe uh, uh, gods, and they were, and so there's a theistic point here. He's talking about Jesus being the one true God, because goodness and kindness was used in conjunction with those things. But goodness and kindness was also used in conjunction with kings. It was used in, we see it in extra, extra literature, in Greco-Roman literature, goodness and kindness being described, descriptive of kings, and kings care, good kings, and good kings caring for their people, right? That they would, um, they're the kind of kings that would come out, that would step down, that were concerned in being involved in the life of their people. And so we see this language, which would have been natural to some of the hearers on Crete, um, the listeners on Crete, the, le the letter recipients on Crete, applied to Jesus Christ, that goodness and kind loving kindness, which was used of gods and kings, and is here applied uh, to God our Savior. And it says that he, like them, but even more so, appeared. And what he begins with is he begins by establishing the gospel in God's character. You know, so many times when we speak about the gospel and we think about the gospel, we think about what it has to do with us, right? We think about the fact that uh, I am saved. I am going to heaven. What God has done for me. God, would you heal me? God, would you bless me? God, would you bless my life? We even do this when we read scripture. We say, uh, what's the point of application? 
What does God's word have to say about me? What does God's word have to say about my life? But let me tell you, and those things, we're, we're sort of tempted, even when we read scripture, and even when we speak about the gospel, to make idols of ourselves. You ever thought about that? Because listen, the main point of the Bible isn't necessarily to address your character. Your, only, your character can be addressed only if you know God's character. And the primary point of scripture should always be, and if you don't have this down on whatever journal, whatever notebook, or whatever study that, that you have, I encourage you to write it down. The first question you should always ask when you come to any passage is not what this says about my life, not how does this apply to my life, but what does this say about God? What does this say about who God is? How can I just spend time praising the Lord and thinking about who he is? And it says this here, that, that his compassion and his, and his loving kindness was appeared, or another way of saying that is that it was made manifest. That it was made manifest. That it was made most manifest when God, our Savior, appeared. And of course, that's speaking about Jesus Christ. You know, I want you to imagine a king, and I know it's difficult for us because we don't live in a, in a kingly type of culture or a culture that has kings much. And if we do, you know, Britain, there's a king, but it's not like he has tons of authority. He doesn't really. But I want you to imagine, uh, I almost wanted to use Jeff Bezos, but that's kind of a, I don't really want to talk about that guy. So, but just imagine, imagine whatever king you'd like to imagine. I don't know. But imagine a king that robed in splendor and glory, access to anything he wants, access to all the riches of the world, desiring nothing, wanting nothing, uh, perfectly safe, perfectly cared for, all of a sudden leaving his castle and becoming poor and entering into his people's suffering on purpose. And let me tell you, that's what this verse is saying about our Savior, is that Christ left glory, he left all that behind and he humbled himself and took on the form of a what? Of a servant. And really took on the form of a slave. Servant is a really nice way to translate slave. Took on the form of a slave. And in that, he modeled what we're supposed to model. What true goodness is and what true loving kindness is. You know, recently I've been reading a lot about early Christian history and um, I was struck by a few people from early Christian history that we don't hear too much about, but um, there's a guy named Basil, not the spice or the leaf, but the man, Basil, and he had a brother named Gregory. And they were alive in the fourth century, and they were, uh, boy, they had money. They had houses everywhere, they had vineyards everywhere, they were rich, they had status, they were aristocrats, they were rich in, and had status and were aristocrats in the empire of Rome, the most powerful empire on earth. But did you know that Basil and Gregory, they became Christians? And because they became Christians, they opened up their homes in the fourth century. And you know, that's where we got the first hospitals and the first orphanages, whenever they opened up their homes to care for sick people, people without roofs, you know, before Christians, nobody did that. Before Christianity, nobody did that. If you were down on a yacht, you lived on the street. 
If you were homeless, you were just homeless unless you could somehow force your way out. But Christians who knew that Christ had come and that Christ had descended and, worse than that, died on a cross, suffered a shameful death, they began to open up hospitals and orphanages. You know, it was the model of Jesus that called their sister, and, and their sister is a forgotten character in Christian history, but her name was Macrina. Not Macarena, but Macrina. <laughs> and Macrina was so moved whenever she became a Christian, she wanted to imitate Christ. And in case you don't know, a lot of crucifixions took place in trash humps, trash dumps, because that, that is what it meant to be crucified, is that you were society's trash. And we don't want to bury you. You might as well rot and decay and just become part of the trash right where you are. But Macrina, she began to go to the trash heaps. And there, guess what she would find? Babies. Babies. You see, before Christians, nobody ever thought to take care of babies. If you didn't want a baby, you just got rid of the baby. And babies were often tossed in rivers, tossed down drains, or thrown and left on trash heaps. But so Macarena, the sister of Basil and Greg, you know what she did? She would walk these traps heaps, scoop up babies, and raise them. Her fancy estates became the first orphanages, and those ladies grew up and became Christians. They would find more babies, and it continued and continued and continued. All that because we have a Savior who appeared with goodness and loving kindness. The main verse of this whole chapter, the main verse of this first clause, is it says in verse 5 that he saved us. He saved us. And how did he save us? Well, it says this, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own Mercy, Not because of works done by us, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. You know, he saved us in a, in a couple different ways. Number one, he saved us, of course, by setting the incarnational model and incarnation and atonement and resurrection. But it also says it was not but according to his own mercy. But if you continue verse five, it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit. And both of these things were given to us. Think about this. You have the gift, the greatest gift imaginable of God himself. There's no greater gift than that. And not only that, but you have the gift of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, with you. I mean, that's a double gift. And these are given not done by our righteousness, because how could they? You know, the Bible says, and it took me a while to, grow, to figure this out growing up a legalistic Christian, but the Bible says that all of our righteous acts are like what? Filthy, dirty, trash rags. Dirty rags. And how could we be righteous apart from God? You know, last week I was asked to speak on sin, and Wednesday night I was asked to speak on sin and the nature of sin. And I pointed out to the audience, I attempted to point out to the audience that unless you know Jesus, unless you know God, 
every action you take is sinful. Now, we don't think of that way. We, we, even though we're believers, will say, well, so-and-so is a good person. We'll say, well, so-and-so, they did a really good thing. But you know what a, what a only good thing can be? A good thing has to be a, a good action, but a good action, again, done with the right motivation. But you can do a good thing, but if that good thing is self-seeking, if that good thing is selfish, it's not good at all. You know, last night, just to brag on myself, um, my wife was having a little bit of a rough day. And not only that, but she climbed up on a ladder to uh, fix a light fixture and ended up hanging by some wires. So I called her and I thought, uh, you know, I called her, she was having a rough day. I could tell she was feeling kind of down. She was frustrated by not being able to fix something she wanted to fix. Because, listen, my wife is a go-getter. She's a type A, right? Something needs to be fixed, I'm going to fix it. Uh, and she likes to get things off her checklist. My personality is, what is a checklist? <laughs> like, I'm sure, I'm sure, like, it'll magically just fix itself. Like, the, bulb, the bulb's not out. Like, the current just messed up somehow. And once those wires unwire, you know, it'll be, it'll be fine once they untangle themselves. You know? But I could tell she was kind of having a bad day. And so... Fortunately for me, Valentine's Day was coming up today. Now, Valentine's Day is a weird holiday, in case you don't know. It's the day that St. Valentine was decapitated. So we celebrate that by, here, would you like a box of chocolate? You know, that'd be nice. Um, but here's the thing. So I went, to, I went on the way, and I thought, you know, I need to get her something. So I got her some flowers, and I got her a, a pint of her favorite ice cream. Listen, you got to do both, all right? Uh, man, ice cream and flowers, like I was living the dream. I knew it coming in. All right, so I was coming in hot, uh, opened up the garage door, and then I had another thought. Again, I don't have a checklist. I just have thoughts. So then I had another thought, and I thought, what if I rang the doorbell instead because she wouldn't be expecting that? So I rang the doorbell, you know, and I mean, I'm a pretty good-looking dude, and I started singing My Girl, you know, really loudly to her, and she was, and it was a good thing. All right, I could, tell, I could tell I had done well, you know? But part of the reason I had done well is because she knew that I was doing something special for her because I loved her. I wasn't doing something special for her so I could get something, so I could get anything out of it. You know, it's not a tit-for-tat relationship. And listen, the only way that you can do anything righteous is if you do something for the Lord. You do the right thing, what God wants you to do, not, not for yourself, that's legalism. You do what God wants you to do because you want to somehow affect, you know, do it for yourself in the way, that's legalism. You do what God wants you to do because you love Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said, right? If you love me, keep my commands. He didn't just say keep my commands. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. And listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you can keep his commands all you want to, but you don't love him. And the world tells us that in the absence of God, we all know that in the absence of God, according to even secular psychologists, uh, well, I mean, of course, according to secular psychologists, is that in the absence of God, every act human beings do is a selfish act. It's just to advantage yourself. It's just to promote yourself. Even if you think you're doing it for something, for another person, and you don't believe in God, it really just is about you in some way. 
And so we can't do anything righteous. So it wasn't because of works done by us in righteousness, but it says this, that he saved us according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. And here he starts talking about, he moves on from God's covenant character to speaking about the Spirit's new creation. And he says this, that it's through the washing. It's, he has a string of the same format of word. It's called genitive nouns. But I wish you could see it in, in the original language. But it, it's a string of, he's stringing these similar words together. Uh, through the washing of rebirth, of renewal. Washing, rebirth, and renewal. Washing is talking about the spirit and the sacrifice of Christ dealing with your past sins. Regeneration or rebirth is talking about you becoming part of God's new creation. And the renewal is speaking about your sanctification, how God is renewing you day by day to move you and make you more and more fit for this new creation, new kingdom life. Here, Paul, Paul uses the language found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, where God cleanses his people and he gives them a new heart and a new spirit. He's saying that these promises that were given in the Old Testament in Ezekiel are coming true right now through what Jesus has done. That through Jesus, through his work on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, that your past sins are dealt with, that you're part of a new creation, and, you're, and he enables you to live out day by day, renewing you, live out that new creation life. And then it says this, that the Holy Spirit comes, what? Whom he pours out, and it's through who? It's through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, we don't think about it much, but Messiah and Savior were lightning rod terms. Especially when this letter's being written in 65 or 66. If you know anything about your Bible, if you know anything about biblical history, in AD 70 is when the, the temple is destroyed. Right? Just like Jesus predicted. In AD 70, the temple is destroyed. But listen, things were getting pretty hot in 65 and 66 AD. You know, there were factions breaking up, different people claiming to be a leader of a new Israel, different people claiming to be messiahs. Rome was marching in. Everybody was getting ready for an invasion. Things were moving pretty hot. And you had, you had false messiahs on one side, and you had the emperor who called himself the savior. Same word, called himself the savior on the other side. And here Paul writing to Titus is saying, no, savior and messiah, Christ, that's found only through Jesus. And only through him can what these people are battling for, right? These people are battling for control. These people are battling for power. These people are battling for their vision of what a well-ordered society looks like. Their vision of what should be done with the world looks like. And he's saying, but no, all this vision, if you want to know what the world looks like, if you want to know how the life should be lived out, it can only come through the Holy Spirit given to you by Jesus Christ, who's both Messiah and Savior. It comes through Christ. And then he says this, he uses this term, and I want to camp on this word for a little while. Because I think that we misunderstand it, or we just overemphasize maybe rightly, one aspect of it. 
But it says this, so that being justified, so that being justified. And listen, I'm thankful that I'm justified in Jesus Christ. You know, and I've heard a definition for justified as just as if I had never sinned, right? God looks at me just as if I had never sinned. But can I suggest to you that definition is sort of similar to what I was saying at the beginning? It's a very self-centered term. You know, justification uh, is a loaded term. It's a loaded theological term. And, and I kind of want to unwrap a little bit of what it meant. For us who are Reformed, we believe that justification uh, or being made right with God is through faith, and it is. <laughs> this doctrine was lost for a long time until Martin Luther sort of rediscovered it. Actually, another guy, well, a couple guys before him, but he got to be really famous just for situation. in the situation he was. I think God providentially used him. But he says this, that justification is the master and prince, Lord, leader, and judge of all teaching. That is, how you are made right with God is the core of theology. And he says this, coming from Romans, and he, he read, Luther read from Romans 4, chapter 5 through 8, that however, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justify the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Their faith is credited as righteousness. And David says the same thing. He goes on, uh, Paul goes on in Romans. He says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness and of the one to whom credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes a psalm. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And so what righteousness has to do with, or justification has to do with, is the fact that God no longer counts your sin against you. And he no longer counts your sin against you. It says in this verse that, uh, that um, it's the one to whom God credits righteousness. And Luther rightly discovered that through faith, uh, because Christ lived a sinless life, and he died a perfect sacrificial death, that through faith, when we enter into, when we belong to Jesus Christ, we get the benefits of that relationship. And one of the benefits of that relationship is that Christ's righteousness becomes our own. That it's credited to us. It's not ours. We don't own it. But it's somehow credited to us. And so whenever you come to faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is what God sees when he looks at you. He doesn't judge you by your past sins. He doesn't judge you by your current sins. He doesn't judge you by your future sins. He judges you by the righteousness of the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's how he sees you. And that's how he judges you. And listen, I think that's the core of justification. But it's also not the whole picture. It's not the whole picture. You know, there's some famous things that we have, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the picture of, uh, of God reaching down to man, you know, that famous painting or that famous picture, you know, it was years until I learned like that was just like one portion of all the paintings on the Sistine Chapel. And it's like the core point, it's the focal point, but it's just one little small spot of this entire artwork. And justification is the same way. Um, whenever God sees you, he does see his righteousness. But the word means more than that. It means more than that. 
One of the things that it means, justification by grace through faith, is that not merely that you exercise faith and you get made right with God, but that God grants you faith to believe in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about that is if God grants you the faith to believe the gospel, and that's biblical, we're saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourself. It is a free gift from God. It refers to both the grace and the faith. So when you believed, you didn't just like make a selection like I decided to uh, bring my wife home chocolate ice cream last night. I could have brought home coffee. I could have brought home cookie dough. There's plenty of other flavors. But I, you know, so when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't just say, hey, I realize this is true. I'm going to make a selection, and if I do this, then God has to do that. That's not how it works. But you're saved by grace through faith, and that is a gift. And so one of the thing, aspects of justification is that when you believed, Christ was present in your faith. It's not merely that Christ's righteousness becomes yours, but when you believed, that that was also a gift given to you. One of the places to go if you really want to learn about justification is Daniel chapter 9. And you're like, what does Daniel chapter 9 have to do with Titus? What does Daniel chapter 9 have to do with Titus? Well, like I said before, uh, 65 through 70 AD was a really, really critical time. And it was a critical time because people were expecting, there was an expectation that Messiah would come. And there was an expectation that Messiah would come actually in that time frame. And we get that time frame from looking at Daniel chapter 9. If you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, and we're going to spend some time there, so go ahead and turn there. Daniel is reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was written right whenever Israel was sent into exile, whenever they were sent into Babylon. And so Daniel's there, and he's praying. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, by descent of Mede, who made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. All right. So if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah makes this prophecy. The whole land will become a ruin and a waste, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and make that nation the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And so Daniel, this prophecy has come true, and Daniel's living in that time where they're in exile. And so he's reading Jeremiah, and he's like, when are you going to set us free, Lord? The 70 years is coming up. When are you going to set us free? And he prays this wonderful prayer of repentance, and we'll get back to that later. But in verse 20, if you skip down to verse 20, Gabriel brings him an answer. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come up to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are declared, are decreed, about your people. So what he's telling Daniel 
is it's not just 70 years, like Jeremiah said, but it's uh, seven weeks of 70 years. It's 490 years. And so whenever, part of what's going on whenever Paul's writing, I'm sorry if this is too TMI, too much info, but I think it's fun, and I promise it'll lead somewhere. Okay, just hang with me. But in the mid-first century, and this is also cool too because that's when Jesus came, it was about 490 years. 490 years after this prophecy. Thereabouts. But that's why you have such upheaval. Josephus, the historian of that century, even talks about it, that there were fractions, that there were a rebellion against Rome, and that they read, and many of the people did so because they read about it in their scriptures, specifically Daniel. Like, where's the Messiah going to come from? But in Daniel's prayer, he uses the word for justification in a lot of different ways. In verse 3, he says, Did I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy? With fasting and ashes. In verse 4, he says this, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God. And this is Daniel chapter 9, verse 4 who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandment. The same word for justification in Titus, and listen, I know the Old Testament's written in Hebrew for you scholars out there. I know the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. I know the New Testament's written in Greek, but Paul 90% of the time uses the Greek Septuagint, so I'm going off the Greek, right? Because that's the ball the Bible that Paul normally used, all right? Here's what he says. He says that, um, and he uses the same word, the same word for what? Justification used right here when it says that God is a God who keeps covenant. So justification, whenever Paul uses it, isn't just about our trans Christ's right, righteousness being transferred to us. That's the central core of it. But it's also describing that God is a God who keeps his promises. Why would God transfer the righteousness of Christ the Messiah to you? Because he is a God that is keeping his covenant. Because your salvation and my salvation isn't just about us, it's about what God has done ever since the time of Abraham. That he is a covenant-keeping God. And again, it goes back to what? His character who he is, what he is like. It's not just about us. In verse 7, he uses the same word. Uh, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. At this day to the men of Judah. And whenever, whenever the word justification, righteousness, is the, is the same word in Greek, you translate it different depending on the context. But if you just go off of Greek, listen, the Lord doesn't have any need for righteousness to be transferred. He had never done anything wrong. But again, he's emphasizing what? His character. He says, to the Lord our God, in verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs justice. Same word. Uh, so justice is part of justification. God's character is part of justification. God's character as a covenant-keeping, loving God is part of our justification. In verse 13 of Daniel chapter 9, it says this, As written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and understanding your faithfulness. 
is the same word. For faithfulness is the same word as justification. Therefore, the Lord is kept ready, in verse 14, therefore the Lord is kept ready and the calamity is brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous. The same word describing the Lord. So what am I trying to say here? Is that God is a covenant-keeping God. And that when Paul writes about us being justified by his grace, it's not merely talking about the fact that we are saved. Right? And the way that we normally think about saved. The way we normally think about saved is very much, again, it's very much about what Christ has done for me. Right? I get his righteousness and I go to heaven when I die. Right? It's very much me and you focused. But justification as it's understood in Daniel, justification as it's understood in other places of the Bible, though it is how we come into a relationship of God, it's also how we live out our relationship with God. It's also how we live out our life as Christians. And listen, isn't that just what Paul is talking about beforehand? How do we live in a lost world? How do we model uh, God's covenant in this world, right? That's what Jesus prayed. That's why Jesus prayed, God, let your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven, right? In other words, God, let us live out what heaven looks like here on this earth. You know, it, salvation isn't, again, it's not just about you being saved and going to heaven, but it's about you living out what heaven looks like on this earth. And that's the whole point of the church. That's the whole point of Christian community. That's the whole point, really, in Genesis, where men and women are made in the image of God. It takes two. That's the whole point of them being commanded to be fruitful and multiply. That's the whole point of what we've been reading in Genesis about Abraham, is that he's going to have descendants. He's going to have a nation. And when you get to uh, uh, Solomon and Gomorrah, God's whole point with that is he's showing this is what judgment look, looks like, and this is what righteousness looks like, Abraham. And you need to learn what righteousness looks like because you've got to model this for your family. In other words, salvation isn't just about what you being in a relationship with God, but it's about if we have the Holy Spirit. Again, he's writing to Titus, but he's telling Titus how to speak to a church. It's about how you and I live together because we each have the Holy Spirit, right? Scripture says that uh, your, body is, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The you there is plural. It's not singular. It's not talking about just you. You are not a temple on your own, right? You're just a stone, Right? Christ is the cornerstone. He's a living stone. You're just a stone. And a brick laying over here by itself is not a temple. But all of us together as the body of Christ, we are Christ's temple. And so being justified, it is about what Christ has done for you, but it's also about God's character, his design, his plan, and living that out on earth so people get a little bit a taste of heaven right now. And let me tell you, this matters. This matters. What, if, if salvation was just about what Christ did on a cross for you, then why did he come and live on this earth for three, three years? What would have been the point? He could have just been incarnate as a man, died on a cross, never have sinned, and you could get salvation. But he came to show us how to live, what we're supposed to model, what we're supposed to look like, what God would look like if he could live 
among us on earth. And it's our job together as a church through justification to model that. It, just, it doesn't just end with your salvation. It's about what we are doing for the Lord. Are we showing his kingdom? And it means, and it means a lot. Let me give you a personal word of why it means a lot to me. So my, my uh, granddad is the only male relative I've got left alive that's older than me, you know. And so I love him a lot. Uh, great, great guy. He's been through a lot, <clears throat> you know. Um, but he's 89. Uh, and, he, you know, he's not very mobile anymore, so he's not like a healthy 89. I'm not sure what a healthy 89 looks like. Maybe some of y'all are healthy looking 89. I just don't know. <laughs> All right, but he's not mobile anymore. So he called, he called me last night, and he, he goes this. And he's been to church his whole life, so it surprised, surprised me that he asked me this. But he said, uh, Jonathan, what is, what is heaven like? You know, and I was like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, all day long, I sit in this chair, and there's no baseball on right now, there's no football on right now, and I'm bored to death. <laughs> and he said, you know what? Um, yeah, we love baseball, too. Uh, Rangers won the World Series last year, and we were pumped. Thought it would never happen. Okay, and I was super pumped because my granddad got to see it. Anyway, that's a, I have ADD, and sometimes I go over here. That's okay. Russell chases rabbits, too. All right? Man. But anyway, but he called me, and he asked me, Jonathan, what is heaven like? Because he's got a picture of heaven that is just about, really, kind of about individual salvation. Right? And I say, Granddad, you know when we all used to get together for, like, church events or family events? Yeah. I said, you know how, like, those were really joyful times, blessed times? Yeah. And I was blessed because everybody in my family was a believer. Everybody in my family was a believer. So it really was when we all got together, I mean, sometimes we would sing hymns and just have a great time. And I said, Granddad, remember? I said, that's, to me, that's what heaven is like. The Bible says you can eat, drink, or whatever you do, you can do it all for God's glory, right, if you're mindful of him. And if you think about new earth and new creation, if you think about the fact that you can't get tired, if you think about the fact that you can't get hurt, I said, Granddad, you used to love working with wood. I said, imagine new creation where everything you do, you're mindful of God and you're glorifying Him. Everything you do, you're mindful of God and you're worshiping Him. I mean, the Bible says there's a city there, right? Everything's remade. So, like, so Granddad, just imagine that Jesus is present, we're all together, we're not bound by sin, and you've got every kind of wood you'd ever want to work with, and you've got all eternity to work with it for his glory and to have fun. You know, that's what heaven's like. Because it's a community of people that God has chosen to model him, to know him, and to make him known. And the point is, is that if justification, if salvation is just seen about us, then we forget, we neglect that God has saved us to do something, right? Which is to live out what the gospel life looks like. You know, the beginning, I, I began with the, with the models of Gregory and Mark Macrina and um, Basil. And, and 
You know, sometimes I think that we've lost a little bit of that. We've lost just a little bit of showing the world around us what the gospel community of believers looks like. God didn't save you just to go to heaven, but he saved you to do something. And, and that's the point. J.I. Packer put it this way, the reason why the Old Testament calls God's vindication of his oppressed people his righteousness is that is an act of faithfulness to his covenant promises to them. And it is their living out of those promises in response to him. And that's the point of Titus. That's the point of sending Titus, saying, Titus, you, an uncircumcised Gentile, can be filled with the same Holy Spirit that a circumcised Jew can be filled with. And look, this is how you're going to do church together. This is the kind of community you're going to be. And look what he just says at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, and this is how you model it to the world around you. All right? Let's look at that. It says, verse 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Does that look like the church? To be submissive to rulers and authorities. If you were here at the 8 o'clock service, there's one thing that I said that I wish I shouldn't have said, and I should have never said that, and I, and I regret it even now. I should have never said that um, because I was having problems reading the words on the screen that I was like Biden. should have never said that. Should have never said that. You know why? Because there could be a lost person in the room who thinks that being a Christian is being a Republican, but more than that because uh, the Bible says to be submissive and show respect to authorities. And I was supposed to model that. It says to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Every good work. And what are the good works? Um, well, here, here's the list. To speak evil of no one. To stop fighting. Arguing. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy toward all people. You know, one of my heroes of the faith, um, you know, was, was my other granddad, my papa. I told you I was blessed. Plus the Christian family, my papa. And one thing I remember about him is that, you know, he had, he was an old farmer's boy. Man, that was a great generation. But man, he was, he was an old farmer's boy from Iredell, Texas, and he raised chickens, and he would just take eggs to anybody that was hungry. He would take a chicken every, I remember, I don't remember a Thanksgiving where I didn't get up with him early in the morning, we were at his house, and take a turkey to somebody else before he started working on our own. Don't remember it. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. And here's why. Because we ourselves were once foolish. We ourselves were once disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We passed our days in malice and envy. So we used to argue and quarrel and talk and backbite and slander other people. We were hated by others and we hated on one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And I'm going to skip down to verse 7, but it says, So that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and he, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful, what? To devote themselves to good works. To devote themselves to that kind of a lifestyle, to be that kind of church, to be that kind of Christian community. Listen, if people know more about your stance on Trump than they know about your stance on Jesus, you're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. People know, about, know more about your stance on Biden than your stance on Jesus. You're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong. Live out good works. So I just want you to, to challenge us you know, are we living in light of God's covenant character? How are we, how am I living out the Spirit's new creation individually and together? And how do we model a Savior who died in the most shameful way possible so that he could identify with the least of these?